And uh, we're going to look at verses 36 through 46. And while you're turning there, just let me say I appreciate so much the positive response that we've had over the, the last sermon series that we did, talking about biblical wisdom for our money, getting unstrapped. And I noticed, I, I was told, uh, Erlene came and gave me a report this week and said that we had Sam, several families that have taken that step of faith and have decided that what was preached was in fact scriptural, that it was done in a way that it was not manipulative or coercive, uh, and it was by faith an action that they decided they wanted to take. So I want you to know that I've noticed, that we've noticed, I'm proud of you, and let me just warn you, you've made the devil angry by taking a step of faith. And it would be normal and natural for it to get worse before it gets better. Because the devil will fight you in any way that he can to get you to change your mind about your commitment. But if you will stand still in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, you will ultimately have victory over him. And you will begin to see the fruit of your faith as it springs forth in your life. I really do believe that with all of my heart. I got tickled at some this morning. Uh, you know, I'd made some comment at some point that, you know, we weren't supposed to do it so that people could see us, so we really ought not run back to the boxes and slam the, the doors on the, on the top of the mailboxes. So I've noticed that some of you have been doing that just to get my attention to let, let me know that you, you paid your tithe that you gave, and I thought, well, you know, really, it's probably not a bad thing because every time you hear somebody banging those boxes, you'll say, oh, I need to put my tie check in there too. But I tell you, we've got a great work to do in these last days. Jesus is coming again soon. Do you believe that? And we are to be about the business of the kingdom in these last days, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it does take funds to do that. That's not the reason we preached it. I wasn't trying to get money out of you. I was trying to get blessings to you. Because any time that we act upon the Word of God in faith, it opens up windows of blessing that we, we can't contain. So that's good. Now over the next six weeks up until Easter, uh, we're going to be talking about a brand new series of messages called The Last 24. Now, the reason that we've called this series The Last 24 is because we're going to be talking about different events that took place in the life of Jesus Christ in the last 24 hours of his life. You think about it, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said to you that you only had 24 hours to live, there would be some things that you would probably want to take care of. And as long as you had your mind about you and your wits about you, you would live that last 24 hours, hours of your life with purpose. You wouldn't be fooling around with unnecessary things. You would be speaking to people that you needed to speak to. You would be sharing information with them that you felt would be vital to the success of their life. You would make the most of those hours that you had left. And we're going to see over the next few weeks some of the things that Jesus thought were very important for his disciples and those that he would interact with over these last 24 hours. 
So today we're going to start in Matthew chapter 26, and we will read from verses 36 to 46, and this will be a passage of Scripture that you'll be very familiar with. It is set in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it really is one of the battles that Jesus had to fight right off the bat, knowing what he was going to have to do. So let's read together, beginning at verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. For the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help me to do justice to the Word of God today and to say what needs to be said. I pray for every heart, every ear that is listening today, that it would be open, spiritually open to hear what you are speaking to us. <clears throat> Let our lives be transformed and changed as we see the truth of your Word and what you've done for us. Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name. I give you all the glory, for your name is worthy to receive it. You are worthy to receive it. Amen and amen. So today we're going to talk about what I'm going to call crunch time. Now crunch time is often a reference that we make in athletic events in the last part of the game. Now it's interesting how God works things out. He knew that I was going to be preaching this today and talking about crunch time. And as an example, he gave us two great games yesterday that are examples of crunch time. Now let's start with the bad news first. Louisville Cardinals have not yet learned the importance of crunch time. Now if you're a Cardinals fan today, I, I, you know, I've been praying for you because the Cardinals have not yet understood the concept that you should play your best basketball in the last few seconds of the game. Louisville, of course, was given the opportunity to win. Coming down at crunch time, all they had to do was make a basket. They could have won, but they missed a couple of times. 
made a couple of critical errors in the last few seconds of the game, uh, and they lost the game. They didn't, they didn't have what it took yesterday anyway to win the game. Now, Kentucky, on the other hand, have a coach and players that know how to peak at the right moment in the right time. Now, for those of you who are Cardinal fans, just go ahead and bow your heads and start praying. I'm just speaking the truth today. It's very obvious by watching them play, the, the Cats play, that they have a coach that understands what, it, what needs to happen at crunch time. What needs to happen in the waning moments of the game. And as a result, we had two separate results. The Cardinals losing in crunch time and the Cats winning in crunch time at the very last possible time. Now again, I'm not trying to offend anyone or turn anybody off, but I'm just saying to you that there is a very real principle involved. Successful coaches and successful teams know how to bring their best at crunch time. And those that are still learning the lesson, whether it's a coach or whether it's players, often lose the battle in crunch time because they don't understand yet what it takes to peak at the right moment. Now, you may be thinking that I'm just talking about basketball today, but I'd like to say to you that I made that, um, that example and gave that example today because in spiritual terms, we have to learn when to fight our best battles. There are some things that we don't need to be fighting at all. And there are other things that we need to understand that now I must rise to a level of faith like I've never had before if I'm going to win this battle. I've had several seasons in my life through the years when I knew that I couldn't just go through the motions, that I had to pray like I'd never prayed before. That I had to believe some things that I had never been willing to believe before. That I had to do some things that I had never done before because I realized that the enemy of my soul was trying to destroy me, to kill me, to steal from me. And I had to understand that there is a greater power within me through the power of Jesus Christ. And if I can simply activate my faith in those moments at crunch time, then the Spirit of God would allow me to be victorious. So as we join this story in Scripture, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus understood that this was crunch time. I'm going to make a very bold statement that you may agree with and you may not agree with, but I would say to you that the battle for our sins and the forgiveness and deliverance of our sins was really won in the Garden of Gethsemane rather than at the cross of Calvary. Now, I, because, see, Jesus had to get through this moment in Gethsemane or Calvary would have never happened. Now, I understand the theological um, ramifications of Calvary, and I'm not trying to preach heresy today, but I'm saying that in this moment, the enemy knew that if he could get Jesus 
to disobey the will of God in this moment that all of the rest would never take place. And so Jesus in this garden is fighting for our salvation. It was Thursday night. It was probably close to midnight. It is a week that had been full of last things. He had had his last visit to the temple. He had preached his last sermon. He had experienced the last supper with his disciples. And now he took three of his inner circle with him to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would have his last prayer meeting before going to Calvary. So it was a moment of last things. And he knew that he had to fight through this. Now, the cardinals and the cats fought their battle in a gymnasium. But Jesus would not be fighting his battle in a gymnasium. He was going to be fighting his battle in a garden called Gethsemane. And that's exactly what he was doing. He knew what was going to happen. He knew full well that the enemy was going to attack him on all sides. John chapter 18 and verse 4 says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? This is when the guards came to take him away. It says he knew exactly what was going to take place. He knew it was crunch time, and he knew that he would have to give his best. How many of you know that we have crunch time in our lives? You may be in a crunch time right now. Crunch time occurs when I am faced with a situation where I have to make a moral choice, and I have to decide if I'm going to do what God wants me to do or what I want to do. It's on the screen. You ought to look at that. You see, all through life, it's crunch time when we have to make moral choices. I remember many years ago when I was standing in, uh, in Granite City Steel, many years ago underneath a conveyor belt, when I had given up on my calling. I had decided and I reminded God that I didn't want to be called in the first place. And that I only said yes because I felt obligated to do it. But when the going got tough, I got going. I ran from my call. And I took a job at a steel mill. And I'm down there shoveling steel shavings off of the floor into, onto a conveyor belt. And God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to me in that dark hole. And he said, you can stand here all you want to, but it does not change the fact that I have called you and set you apart to preach the gospel that I have given you. And you can stand here and be miserable if you want to, or you can respond to my call and I will bless you abundantly. And that night I took my shovel to the foreman and I handed it to him. And I said, I will not be back because I have a calling upon my life, and I never went back again. And from that day to this, I have wanted to quit from time to time. There have been days that I thought, what in the world did I sign up for? But I want you to know that God has been with me every step of the way, and every victory that I have in my life is because of Jesus Christ. 
crunch time, what will you do? Maybe you're a young couple and you're not married yet. And uh, you go out on a date and you're starting to feel real good about that person that's sitting in the car with you. And all of a sudden the windows start getting heated up. And things start flowing in that direction. And, and you know, you know the Spirit of God that is in you. You're saying, I'm seeing you. I'm watching everything that you're doing. And you know that what you're about to do will not bring glory to my name and will not please me. You have a choice. You can go ahead and do what you're planning to do or you can say, not my will, but thy will be done. I know that you have not called me to this kind of activity and so I'm going to pull the plug on the activity right now and I'm going to dedicate my body and my life to Jesus Christ. You didn't know I was going to say something like that today, did you? But what I'm trying to tell you is, is that we will have a crunch time in our life. It may be something different for you in a different moment, in a different time. But we all have crunch times and we have to decide, am I going to do what God wants me to do and what His Word teaches me to do? Or am I going to do what my flesh tells me to do? Crunch time. So let's talk about this idea of crunch time today. Number one. Crunch time involves seeking the will of God. Crunch time involves seeking the will of God. Now, there are a few times in Scripture that we see Jesus praying. But we never see Jesus praying about the same thing multiple times in a giving setting. Usually, when He prays, He just prays, and it's done. But in this instance, we see Jesus praying multiple times. Look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. It says, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then you can go down to verse 42. It says, And he went again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then you can go down to verse 44 and read these words. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Now, when you see him praying about the same thing three times, it gives me the idea that that must be pretty important. That that must be something that he is concerned with. And what he prays about in every instance is, God, I want your will to be done. I want in the right moment at the right time to be able to set my flesh aside and do what you want me to do. Three times he prays for the will of God. This is not unusual for Jesus because he'd been concerned about the will of God since he was a young boy. Do you remember the story when he was about 12 years old and he ran off from the caravan and they could not find him and mom and dad were upset. They're trying to find Jesus. Where in the world is he? And finally they found him in the temple. 
And when they asked him what he was doing, he said this. He said, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? He was concerned about the will of God even when he was 12 years old. Can I just chase a rabbit here for a minute? Parents, I'm telling you, raising children can be so difficult. There are times that they seem rebellious. There are times that they seem like that they're just trying to annoy you. But let me say to you that one of the most important things that you can teach them, better than them having some skill that will take them through life, more than some talent that they can develop, the most important thing that you will ever teach them is to trust in Jesus Christ at a very young age and to dedicate their lives to serving Jesus even when they are young. Jesus said when he was 12 years old, I must be about my father's business. When he started his ministry, he told those around him in John chapter 4 and verse 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, the thing that nourishes my spirit, the thing that gives life to me, is to be about the things of the kingdom of God. That's the reason that the scripture says to us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things will be added unto you. Jesus was solidifying a principle that he lived his own life by when he said, my food, that which nourishes me is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work and then he said later in John chapter 6 verse 38 he said for I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me one of the reasons that I have such a problem with our philosophy in our world system today is that it teaches us that it's all about us. It's all about you. Whatever you are, whoever you are, do what you do. What? But there are times in our lives, if we're going to be followers of Christ, that we must be willing to say, my flesh would say for me to go this direction. My flesh would say for me to believe this. But my spirit says that I must put aside my flesh in order to follow the things of God. And if you're going to be successful, and if you're going to ultimately hear Jesus say, well done thou good and faithful servant, there will be times, crunch time, when you have to be willing to say, nope, that's the will of the earth. That's the will of of the flesh and I have not been raised up to fulfill the will of the flesh I'm a child of God I've got royal blood flowing in my veins I'm a child of the king amen and I am to be about the business of the kingdom so we have to seek the will of God I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not but really the entire Bible is the story of two gardens the first garden was the Garden of Eden, all the way back in creation. And then the second garden was the Garden of Gethsemane. Someone said that what one man did in one garden ruined us. What another man did in the other garden rescued us. Aren't you glad for that today? 
Listen, Adam and Eve only had one concern, and that was to do what they wanted to do. God had said, do not eat of this tree, because as surely as you do, you will die. They didn't care what God said. The only thing that they cared about was what felt good to their flesh. And they made a choice. Not to fulfill the the Word of God and the will of God, but to fulfill their own will. And because of the choice they made, sin came into this world. And most of the problems that we face today, all of the manifestations of sin, and I could call them off one after another, after another, after another, but I'm not going to take time to do that today. Sin as we know it, and the manifestation of sin, all comes down to the fact that one man, Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, made a choice to set aside the will of God so that they could fulfill the will of the flesh, and in so doing, they brought destruction into this world. But thank God there was another man in another garden who prayed it through and said, Lord, I don't want to do this. Father, I do not want to do this in my flesh. But I set my flesh aside uh, and I've determined uh, that I will do the will of the Father. And because he did, Calvary came. And because of Calvary, and we'll talk about that before it's all over with, the blood was shed and our sins were forgiven. Aren't you glad for that today? Secondly, crunch time includes struggling with the will of God. I want to make this perfectly clear. Being a Christian is not for wimps. Look at your neighbor and tell him, you must not be a wimp if you're a Christian. Being a child of God is not for wimps. Because every time we're confronted with the Word of God and the will of God, it requires us setting our will aside. It required, just like when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, it required Him saying, I don't want to do what feels good. I want to do what will bring freedom. I want to do what the will of the Father is. Listen, when Jesus walked into that garden, he knew exactly what was going to happen. I've already said that. He knew exactly the suffering that he was going to have to do. He knew what he was supposed to do, but he also knew what he didn't want to do. That sounds like me. That sounds like you. We know what we need to do, but we also know what we don't want to do. Don't look at anybody right now. This would be a bad time to to look at anybody right now. But if we're going to be successful, we have to get beyond what we want to do and do what God wants us to do. He knew. So Jesus was stressed out. Now, just strap in for a minute and stay with me because some of you theologians are going to wonder where I'm going with this. Jesus was stressed out. Jesus was feeling like he was almost at the point of death. His body was at the point of death, and he had not yet even gone to Calvary. He had not yet been beaten and had stripes put upon his back. He's dealing emotionally with all that is getting ready to transpire, and he's anxious about it. If you don't believe me, look at Matthew chapter 20. 
Verse 38, it says, He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And then look at Luke chapter 22, verse 44. It says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So here we have a picture painted for us of Jesus as he is lying on his face, praying, crying, calling out to the Father. And the Bible tells us that his sweat became like great drops of blood. Now doctors describe this condition as hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. And what it literally is, is that when the body comes under a high level of anxiety and stress, that the capillaries that are underneath your skin begin to swell and burst. So that you're literally bleeding underneath your skin. And the blood has to have somewhere to go, so it finds the sweat glands and pores and begins to come out of the body, out of the skin, in order to exit the body. That's what was happening to Jesus. He was under such stress and anxiety and believing that his body was dying that these capillaries begin to break under his skin and come out of his sweat glands and pores out of his body. We know that when something like this begins to happen that other things are there as well. For instance, his heart rate was probably off the charts. His heart rate was probably beating very fast as he was dealing with his stress and anxiety. His blood pressure would have possibly been at stroke level because of what his body was going through. Now, I'm talking about stressful situations. Now, I don't know if you've ever, ever been at a place like that in your life. Probably no one in this house today has been so stressed out that you begin to bleed through your sweat glands. What I'm trying to tell you today is this thing that Jesus went through for you and for me was not an easy task. He suffered for you. He suffered for me. He went through this in order to win the battle for our souls. And sometimes we serve Jesus so flippantly and we just kind of add him to our life as an extra ingredient and we forget the fact that what Jesus did for us was a high cost. It was a great sacrifice. And when we serve him and we decide that we're going to serve him, we must do it with all of our might and all of our energy because of the great price that he paid for us. He was afraid. You say, now, now this is where I'm going to disagree with you because we're taught in Scripture that, we, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And you're right, that's true. But the Bible also says in Hebrews that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. 
So in order for us to believe that Jesus understands what it is to be afraid, then he had to be, a t- he had to be tempted with that. He had to have some kind of attack on his soul in order for him to experience that. But here's the difference between Jesus and us. Oftentimes when fear sets in in our lives, it causes us to make decisions that violate the Word of God and the will of God in our life because we're human and we want to put away as much stress as we possibly can. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I lied, but it was just a white lie. It wasn't a real lie. I just withheld some of the truth so that they didn't get all of the truth and they didn't get the whole picture. So I didn't really sin in terms of the fact that I lied because it was just a white lie. Well, why would we do something like that? It's because we're afraid that if somebody finds out the truth about this situation, that they're, they're going to think badly of us, or we're going to have a negative consequence in our life. So we'll tell a little white lie. So we were tempted, and we were afraid of the consequence, and so we sinned in order to make the consequence less than when we had thought about it and imagined it. Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. So here's the difference though. I can allow fear to cause me to make poor decisions and it causes me to sin which requires me to go back to the altar and repent and ask for forgiveness and decide that I'm going to learn my lesson and I'm not going to do that again. But Jesus didn't sin. Jesus was tempted with fear. Jesus felt fear. Jesus' body was anxious and bleeding because of that. His heart rate was up. His blood pressure was up. And he was tempted to say that because of the fear of what might happen to me, Father, I'm not going to go through with this. But thank God. Jesus overcame his fear and anxiety. And he said, no, no, not my will be done. Your will be done. Aren't you glad that he was willing to do that? So what was he afraid of? Was he afraid of death? I don't think he was afraid of death. Because you remember the... The scripture tells us not to be afraid of those who can take the body but cannot destroy the soul. Jesus was not afraid of death. Jesus knew when he came to earth he was going to die. He was ready for that. So then what was he concerned about? I would like to submit to you this morning that what he was concerned with was not death, but it was the cup that he was about to have placed in his possession, the cup. And so, well, why would you be fearful of a cup? Why would you be concerned about a cup? Wouldn't dying be much worse? No, because you have to understand the theological ramifications of the cup. The cup represented the wrath of God 
that was going to be poured out on Jesus at Calvary. The Bible says that God was going to take all of the sins of the world, all the past sins, all the current sins, all the future sins, every sin that you've ever committed is going to go in that cup. Every sin that you've ever thought of committing, every sin that you will in the future commit, every one of those will be taken and put into that cup. And then God, as Jesus is dying on that cross, is going to put all of those sins upon Him. Here's the best way that I know how to describe it for you. Just a few weeks ago, the Kansas City Chiefs were crowned the Super Bowl champions of the NFL. And as is often the case, there's always a group of players that are hiding this big bucket of Gatorade. Every coach dreams of getting the bucket of Gatorade poured over their head. It's not a bad thing in the NFL. They play for it. They live for it. They, they, they have dreams about it. And Andy Reid wanted the bucket of Gatorade poured upon his head. Sure enough, they get to the end of the game and some of them sneak up behind and they've got the Gatorade. There's one on the right side, one on the left side, and they grab that thing and they sneak up behind him and they pour that Gatorade over the top of Andy Reid's head and he is covered from the top of his head all the way down to his big toe. He is covered in Gatorade. But listen, God was getting ready to pour a cup out on Jesus that Jesus did not want. Because it didn't contain Gatorade Church. It contained all the sin of this world. It contained everything that the devil had ever placed upon us. It contained upon everything that we would ever feel guilty of. It would contain everything that would bring condemnation upon us. But let me tell you, when God the Father would pour out that cup of wrath upon Jesus, uh, then we would later hear that there is therefore now no condemnation to those uh, who are walking in the Spirit of God. He took the cup. You say, well, why was that such a bad thing? Because Jesus had never, think about this, Jesus had such a relationship with his Father that he had never experienced anything but good. He had never experienced anything but the love of the Father. He had never experienced anything but sweet fellowship with the Father. But he was getting ready to go to a cross that would require the Father to look away and to pour the cup of wrath upon him. And that's the reason that Jesus felt this anxiety. And this is the reason that he felt this deep feeling of concern because he knew that the only way that you and I could be freed from the sin of our life is if he took the cup upon himself for our salvation. You ought to give the Lord praise for that right now. <laughs> Hallelujah. Because Jesus took the Father's wrath, you don't have to. 
I know people right now that they call themselves Christians and they call themselves people of faith, but they walk every day of their life with this sense of guilt and condemnation because they said, Pastor, you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I went. You don't know all the things about my life. Listen, I don't have to know. All I know is this, that when Jesus took His sins upon Himself uh, and gave Himself for us, every sin of your life was washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Hallelujah to the Lamb. So when the enemy comes to you and says you're a sinner, when the enemy comes to you and says you're a failure, when the enemy comes to you and says that you're at fault, when the enemy comes and tries to tear you down, you got to shake off those heavy bands and declare to him face to face, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of the king. Amen. I'm a child of the king. One final thought this morning, and then I'll close. Crunch time invites us to surrender to the will of God. What I'm talking to you about today is not automatic. What I'm talking to you about today is not something that God forces on you. He gave Jesus a free will to choose, and He gave you a free will to choose. I can choose to accept or reject what God has offered me. Listen to it again. Matthew 26, verse 39. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't concerned about dying. He was concerned about what it would feel like to have the wrath of God poured out upon him. But then he goes on to say, Yet not as I will, but as you will. In chapter 26, verse 42, it says, Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Now I want you to notice the, word, the words, my Father. It is, it is a word that means Daddy. Or Papa. It's Aramaic. And it gives you the picture of this father figure sitting in a chair and taking his children or his grandchildren into his arms on his lap and holding them tight, and kissing their head, and stroking their hair, and telling them how much he loves them. I have been a father now in many different phases and different stages of my life. I remember when our kids were little, I loved holding them in my arms. I would always, when the two of them were born, I would shave my face, get all the facial hair off, off my face because I wanted to be able to put my cheek up against their cheek and it not bother them. And as soon as they got old enough not to sit in my lap, Donna would say, grow it back. I need as much of your face covered as possible. <laughs> I love to hold them. 
And then they grew up and they started their own families. And we didn't get to see Ben very much, but let me tell you, I loved it. When we could see him and I could hold him in my arms. And hold his hand as we'd walk together. Grammy would sit on the porch swing outside and Ben would get up next to her and and just sit there and they would sing to one another and and laugh with one another. It, It was such a beautiful thing and so many of you know exactly, exactly what I'm talking about. There is no feeling in the world like holding your children in in your arms and and caressing them and giving the love to them that, that is theirs based on your relationship as a father or as a mother. And here we have it. Jesus and the Father. Jesus wanting to escape it if at all possible. But he says, Father, Abba, Papa, Daddy. Daddy, if there's any way that I can avoid this. Papa, if there's any way that we can come up with a plan B, if there's any way, Dad, let it be so. But then he said, but not what I want. Father, I want what you want. I want to fulfill your will. That's the kind of Savior that we serve. When you talk about how hard it is to be a Christian, and how much you have to give up for Him, and how much you have to do, and and all of the, the stuff that comes with being a Christian... I want you to never forget this message in this picture today of Jesus climbing up in the lap of his daddy, his father, his papa, Abba, and saying to him, I'm committed to you. I want to change the plan, but if we cannot change it, then Father, I'll do whatever you want me to do because I know this is why I came. Listen, what we go through is nothing, nothing compared to what Jesus Christ has done for us. Come help me quit if you will. I think sometimes that we think We've been taught this prosperity gospel and this abundance gospel. And I I know that he came to give us life and to give it more abundant. But I think sometimes we forget that it's a challenge to live for the Lord. It takes some effort to be a child of God. It takes total surrender. Because let me tell you, and I, I referred to it earlier before I started preaching... Every time you take a step of faith, whatever it is, I was talking about finances. Some of you started paying tithe. Some of you started giving. You wrote the checks. You did what you needed to do. Let me tell you, that's no pass from the enemy. He's going to come after you and make you doubt that decision. But if you will stay the course, you will have fruit spring up in your life. And it's not just true with your finances. It's true in your relationships. 
it's true in every area of your life if you will stay the course. If you will surrender your will to His will. Great fruit will come from your life. Let me tell you a story about a man by the name of David Livingston. He's one of the most famous missionaries that we've ever known. David Livingston felt a call to missionary service in Africa over 125 years ago. That's how long it's been. When David Livingston went to Africa, there were very few Christians in the nation. They couldn't even hardly be counted because there just weren't many there. They had not quite come into Christianity. David Livingston felt a call of God on his life to go and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he packed up and left everything and went to Africa. As soon as he got there, he was out in one of the bush territories and a lion jumped him and bit one of his shoulders and crushed it. Could not be repaired. And for the rest of his life, he lived with an arm that he could not raise. He was never able to raise his arm again. He went to Africa to get his arm crushed. They thought, well, maybe we can do surgery. So they sent him into the one, of, one of the larger cities and they tried to do surgery. It didn't work. But he, fe- he met a nurse there by the name of Mary. And they fell in love. And Mary became Mrs. Livingston. Together they served the Lord in Africa. They ultimately had five children together. And they all worked as missionaries in Africa. One day one of those children got sick with a plague and died. And David and Mary decided to keep the other children safe. That Mary should take the other four children and go home to Scotland and raise the children. But he would remain. And he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who needed to hear. And for five years, David Livingston never saw his children. He could not communicate with them. They didn't have cell phones in those days. They didn't have the kind of communication abilities that we have today. And for five years, he gave himself in service to the kingdom of God so that people could hear the gospel message. Finally, he got a message from Mary and said, All the kids are grown now. I'm coming to be with you in Africa to preach the gospel. And Mary made the trip. It took her months to get there. When she finally arrived, she immediately contracted a plague in Africa and just a few weeks later died on African soil, leaving David alone. I'm talking about sacrifice. I'm talking about the will of God for our lives. I'm talking about doing everything we can to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Livingston was willing to do that. He was there for 25 years, suffering in all kinds and all manners of ways so that he could preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might be asking, was it worth it? Was it worth it to pay the price that he paid? All the things that he gave up 
in order to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he went there, there were very few Christians. But 25 years after he first went to Africa, there were 10 million Christian believers that could be documented on the continent of Africa that were due because of the preaching of David Livingston. But listen, today, there are over 300 million people in Africa who are Christian believers and it can be tied back to the ministry of David Livingston and his family and those who worked with him. It, was it worth it? I don't know. Only you can answer that. But I don't know. If you're living for yourself, if you're living for what you want, then I would say, no, it probably wasn't worth it at all. But if you're living your life to hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, you've been faithful. Now enter into the joys of the Lord. If that's what you live for, then I would say it was well worth the sacrifices that he made. Do you think Jesus ever says to the Father, do you think it was worth what I did? Do you think it was worth all the pain and the suffering? Do you think it was worth that season that I had to spend in the Garden of Gethsemane just going through the anxiety of, of what I was going to have to face? Do you think it was worth it, Dad? I can tell you that my belief is that He never gives it a second thought. And my belief is that he would do it all again if he had to. If there were one individual in the house today that had never accepted Jesus as Lord, I'm telling you, he would do whatever he needed to do to come to where you are so that you could be in relationship with him. Will you stand with me this morning?